Hey folks, happy Good Friday and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're starting a series for our next three Fridays on Theonomy with James Jordan. Here, Jordan gives a theocratic critique of theonomy, particularly Bonson's understanding of theonomy as he's not 100% on board with his approach. But while critiquing theonomy, he still shows how Christianity is theocratic and that all nations are to be discipled under the biblical law. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing his theocratic critique of theonomy. I've received a copy of Greg Bonson's new book, No Other Standard, Theonomy and Its Critics. And since part of what I planned to talk about was questions and reservations that biblical theocracy can have with theonomy and to talk around that issue, maybe get some feedback from you, I thought I'd focus more on that than I'd originally planned. So these lectures will be on biblical theocracy and theonomy. And I hope they'll be somewhat open-ended and perhaps if there are questions you want to ask or a point you want to raise or discussion, we can do some of that, and I'll try to make sure that your comments are on the tape. Really what I'd like for us to do is think about several points in this area that lead into the problem of theonomy and then give you some theocratic critiques of theonomy that don't necessarily set the whole thing aside, but that raise questions that I think we need to address and think about. So without further ado... The first proposition that I would want to maintain, this number one, is that Christianity is theocratic in the full sense that the Bible requires us to be theocratic, by which I mean that the nations are to be discipled under biblical law. It's popular nowadays, and many maintain that the only sense in which we have a theocracy in the New Covenant is in the church. The church is a theocracy, Christ is her king, and the church is to be ruled by the laws of the Bible. But... If we look at a passage that we're extremely familiar with in Matthew 28, we realize that that can't be the full story. Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, the nations, people of the nations, to observe all that I commanded you. So that the vision of the gospel is not limited to the church. The church doesn't exist for herself alone. In fact, the church joins her Lord in living sacrificially and spending herself for the life of the world. And so the goal of the kingdom is theocratic. It's that every nation be discipled and recognize Christ as king. When Matthew 28 verse 19 says disciple the nations, we have to remember that the context of that in the Bible is Genesis chapter 11. The nations that come into existence at the Tower of Babel. Those are the nations spoken of. In the Old Testament, those are the nations, as opposed to Israel, which ministers to the nations. Israel is set apart as a nation of priests to minister to the nations. Now Jesus comes and he says, we're going to put that into force. All nations are to be discipled. All nations are to be theocracies in some sense. So we can't limit our vision only to the church. We have to speak about national discipleship, and that means theocracy as we popularly think of it. If somebody said, you believe in theocracy? They'd be meaning, do you believe that Christianity ought to run the government? And the answer to that should be yes. And we want to explain what we mean by that, and that becomes a bit problematic. Second point that I think we need to maintain is that the gospel message itself is theocratic. In our society, people think of the gospel as Christ died for people and God saved sinners. 
But that's not distinctive to the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, it was clear that God was going to save sinners. The good news that comes in with the New Testament that is proclaimed as the gospel, as the new thing, is something beyond the idea that God makes a way of salvation for sinners. It's beyond the idea of substitution, because the idea of substitution is clear in the Old Testament. What is new is made plain in the book of Acts in sermon after sermon. And it's not so much what we think of the gospel nowadays, because it's far more theocratic. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 36. This is the first sermon preached after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucify. And that's the end of the sermon. What is this good news? It's that Christ has been made king of the world. It's the kingship, the enthronement of Christ. He has ascended into heaven. He is exalted to the right hand of God. He is sat at God's right hand. And he will rule until all things are put under his feet. Now that's new. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. The good news is that the power of Satan to blind the nations has been broken. The distinctive good news is Christ is king. The distinctive good news is because Christ is king, he's poured out gifts to men, which means the Holy Spirit and his gifts. That's the distinctive good news of the gospel. And it's a theocratic message. It's the kingship of Christ over all things. That's the gospel. Of course the gospel involves saving sinners. Of course it means salvation. But the distinctive new thing, the good news that was so exciting to them was the theocratic message of the kingship of Christ. The next chapter of Acts says the same thing. In Acts 3, verses 12 to 26. I'll just read 22 to 23. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you, and it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Speaking of Christ. The good news is that prophet has come. The good news is he's in charge. The good news is anybody doesn't listen to him is going to be destroyed. The good news is history has changed. See, in the Old Testament, individual people got changed, but history never got changed. The good news is that history has changed. Satan is driven out. The keys of the kingdom are given by the cherubim back to the church. The flaming sword is given back to the church when tongues of fire come upon people at Pentecost and the gospel is proclaimed. That's a theocratic message. The gospel itself is theocratic. In chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, and I'll just read verse 10, summarize another sermon. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead... By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. The resurrection. See, I think one of the odd things that happened to me when I was in Campus Crusade years ago, because our gospel message was, you're a sinner, and now if you repent, Christ has died for you, and you can be saved. And then one of the odd things that happened, we would always be studying the book of Acts, and we would see that they kept preaching the resurrection, and the question was, where does the resurrection fit in on with this? It was always hard to fit it into that system, because... Really, it's the death of Jesus Christ that takes care of your sins, and the resurrection becomes kind of an afterthought. Well, it's the proof that his work was true. But in the book of Acts, it's more than that. The resurrection means that history has gone from death to life. 
In the Old Testament, if you had white patch on your skin of leprosy and somebody touched that white patch, they became unclean. Unclean just means ceremonially dead. If you touched a dead body, you became unclean, ceremonially dead for seven days. If you had an issue of blood from your privates, you were unclean until it went away. Anybody who touched you became unclean for one day. If you touched an animal that had died, or you became unclean. If you went out to battle and killed people in war, you became unclean. Anytime you touched death, death spread, and death spread to all men, as the book of Romans says. And that was pictured by these laws of uncleanness and all the various forms of death. Even if you gave birth to a baby, you became unclean. Because there was death involved in that. In the New Testament, when a woman with an issue touches Jesus, power goes out from him and cleans her. Now life spreads to all men. The resurrection means history has changed. And part of that means Jesus is raised, he's ascended, and he's become the king. It's a theocratic message. It's a historical message. History is different. Not just individual people are different. People were saved in the Old Testament. But the world wasn't saved until now. Now... The theocracy has really started. And that's this message in Acts. In Acts chapter 5, the next sermon we find, verses 29 to 32. I'll just read verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to gain repentance for Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice again, the heart of the message, the exaltation of Christ, means that forgiveness of sins has been given in a definitive way. Acts chapter 7, the Sermon of Stephen, is a big indictment of Israel, but right at the climax, when they're really furious at him, what is the last thing he says that causes them to stone him? Verse 56 of Acts 7, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's a theocratic message that they can't stand. Acts chapter 10, this one, we'll stop here. Acts chapter 10, verses 42 and 43. Peter says, commenting to Cornelius, Acts 10:42 and 43, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, this Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness, and through his name everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is definitely part of the good news because now it's secured in a way it hadn't been in the Old Testament. But the integral aspect of that securing and of the message is the kingship of Christ. And so, my second point, the first point was that Christianity is theocratic because we're to disciple the nations, not just the church. The second is the gospel message itself is theocratic. It's the kingship of Christ. It's the resurrection of Christ. It's the change of history. The third point that I think that we should establish, and what I'm trying to do is lay a groundwork here for biblical theocracy, things that we should all agree on. And then we can get into some of the questions about theonomy that we might not agree on, because it's a more technical question. The third point that I'd like to make is that the theocracy is a bibliocracy. It's ruled by the Bible. And the proof text for that is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which a passage that you have memorized, so let's all say it together. Well, since we all have it memorized in different translations, I'll read it to you in the inspired version. <laughs> All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching. That means everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament is profitable for teaching. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, so as so that we can be equipped for every good work. Now, one good work is politics. So, all Scripture 
is profitable to teach in the area of politics. That means that the book of Ecclesiastes is profitable for politics. It means the Song of Solomon is profitable for politics. It means that the Mosaic Law is profitable for politics. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be adequate and equipped for every good work. If all scripture is adequate for every area of life, then obviously the Mosaic Law is profitable for every area of life. The ceremonial law is profitable for every area of life. Everything in the Bible is still profitable and authoritative for every area of life. All you have to do is just reduce that, take out subsets. All scripture for all of life means Mosaic law is profitable for politics. See how that works? If all of scripture is good for all of life, then the Mosaic law is good for all of life. If all of life includes politics, Mosaic law is valid for politics. But so is all the other laws. It's not just the Mosaic case laws as we think of them, and we'll have to call that into question in a minute, but the so-called laws of uncleanness, the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, they're all profitable for righteous living, if we understood them right. But the bottom line is, if we are theocratic, if we are to disciple the nations, if Christ is king, then this is his law, but from cover to cover, not just part of it, and for every area of life. Now, That much is extremely controversial by itself because what we've done is we've insisted that we're not really going to be paying a whole lot of attention to common grace because nobody can agree on what that is. Maybe there is some kind of common grace that prevents the wicked from being as bad as they ought to be, but you can't build anything on that. It doesn't tell you anything. If you cry out in the night and say, Oh, common grace, tell me what I should do, you get no answer. And the same is true of natural law. Maybe you can use the word natural law and you can define it and qualify it in such a way that it becomes almost Christian. Although, I always wonder why people want to use that because it's just kind of a way of avoiding saying Christ. And I think if I was God and my son had bled and died for you and you didn't want to use his name and kept saying natural law, I might be offended. People just don't want to say Christ is king, so they say natural law. It seems to me that God would be displeased with that. And I don't see why we should talk that way when the Bible really doesn't. But... Whatever it is, it doesn't have much content. So we're back to the Bible, and we've insisted that the Bible has to be the law book for all of life, including politics. That by itself is pretty radical. But it's not the same thing as theonomy. Now, what is theonomy? The word theonomy comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and nomos, meaning law. So it means God's law. Now, probably all of you knew that, but I had to say it for the people on the tape who probably don't know that. Okay, God's law. Now, who's going to disagree with God's law? Well, nobody. Now, all kinds of theologians have claimed to be theonomic. Paul Tillich, one of the most radical liberal theologians of this century, spoke of himself as theonomic. And what he meant by that is not what we would mean. But it's a common enough word, and it means that you believe in God's law, whatever you mean by it. In our circles, though, in Calvinistic circles, theonomy means... Greg Bonson's particular approach to the law of God, which is, in my opinion, questionable. Now, in previous years, people have asked me, are you a theonomist? And I've said, well, with a small T, but not a capital T. I'm a theonomist in the sense that I believe the law of God applies today. I'm not a theonomist in the sense that I agree with Greg Bonson's particular approach to the law. don't disagree with all of it, but I don't agree with things that are most characteristic of his approach. But I have come to feel, and some of you just may disagree with this, that theonomy is so closely identified with Greg Bonson's particular approach that I don't see a whole lot of purchase in continuing to use the word if you don't agree with him. 
So nowadays when people ask you, me, are you a theonomist? I say, no, I'm a theocrat. But theonomy seems to mean Greg Bonson, and I don't agree with Bonson. Now in this new book, which is going to receive wide distribution, Greg tells us who speaks for theonomy. He raises a question on page 19. Who speaks for the position? And the answer is, Greg speaks for the position. Page 24, he refers to the departure of Sutton and Jordan from theonomic exegesis and reasoning, which means that in Greg's opinion, I'm not a theonomist. And what that footnote actually means is, I've departed from Greg Bonson. So if Bonson is the definer of theonomy, then I'm not one. Indeed, on page 26, he says, I should know. The essentials and virtually all the detailed argumentation of the theonomic position have not been revised, reversed, modified, or changed in any significant way whatsoever. In other words, he defines the position, he established it at the beginning with his book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, and he says what it is and what it isn't. And since I don't completely agree with what he says it is, that would mean that I'm not a theonomist. Now, it doesn't make any difference whether I'm one or not, but I'm trying to take you through some reasoning here about the terminology involved. It would seem that any attempt to say theonomy is broader than Greg's particular view is not going to fly, so you might as well just say, if I agree with Bonson, I'm a theonomist. If I don't agree with him, I'm something else. I'm a theocrat or a biblical theocrat or something. Now, what is this? He describes it, defines it on page 27. All theonomists affirm, while non-theonomists deny, that we should presume that Old Testament criminal and penal commands for Israel as a nation not specifically revealed earlier, are a standard for all nations of the earth. Now that is a good description of the issue. That the criminal and penalties given to Israel as a nation are a standard for all the nations of the earth. Now the word standard is fuzzy here. Greg actually means are binding on all the nations of the earth. But in what sense are a standard? We've already said that as a theocrat we would say that the biblical law is somehow a standard. But I think there's some other things. Bonson is the spokesman for this position. Recent books by him and by others have treated him as a spokesman. Gary North and Gary DeMar treat him as a spokesman. So in my personal assessment, if you're a theonomist, if you agree completely with Greg, if you don't, you're a biblical theocrat. And that's how I use the words. Now, I want to raise in the time that remains to me in this conference what I see as some problems with theonomy as Greg has developed it so far over the last 15 years. Not all of these problems are insurmountable by any means. Not all of them are big problems. But I think they're significant problems which indicate that there needs to be a lot more discussion and that this whole matter has not been settled in stone once and for all. There's not a position that is unassailable. One of the difficulties in critiquing theonomy is that a whole lot of people have tried and a whole lot of people have died doing it because almost all the critics of theonomy are extremely unsympathetic with the thesis. They distort it. They haven't come to grips with what Greg Bonson and his followers are actually saying. And they don't believe in theocracy. So since they don't believe in a theocratic approach to civilization, they just say, well, this is wrong because only the church really matters or because common grace is what we should live by or because Thomas Aquinas didn't say this or whatever. I want to provide a theocratic critique of theonomy and say, theonomy is not terribly helpful in getting us the answers we need. If all the Bible applies to all of life, if the Mosaic law applies to political questions, now the question is, how do we interpret the Bible to get answers to questions? And that's where I don't think theonomy is very helpful. 
I think we've got to do better than theonomy has done to answer that hermeneutical question, the question of interpretation. How do you get the answers out of the Bible? And I may be wrong in some of the criticisms that I offer, but these are some of the things that I see. And I've got listed about eight or nine of them here, and we'll start going through them now. So you can call this theonomy a theocratic critique. (laughs) The first problem with theonomy, and I'm assuming something. I'm assuming that almost all of you have some familiarity with Boston's theonomy. If you don't, some of this may lose you, but I can't spend a whole lot of time developing all the background of it. But the first problem that I see with theonomy, as it's usually discussed, and as I read Greg Bonson, and as I read most of the writers in the School of Thought, the first problem I see is I'm not sure what they mean by the word law, or I'm not sure that when they talk about the law, they mean the same thing the Bible means by Torah. The law, and we'll talk about this in different ways in this lecture, Torah, T-O-R-A-H, the Hebrew word that's translated law, is actually broader than law and basically means the teaching of God and the revelation of the mind of God. And it includes not just the thou shalt nots and the if a man does this, then you shall do such and such, but it also includes wisdom and motivation. Remember that you were a servant in Egypt, and so be kind. All these kinds of things are in there, and they're not just laws. When we think of laws in English, a law means a law code. If you park on the street... The law says you're to slide over the seat and get out on the passenger side. Now, the law says that so that if you get out on the driver's side and a car hits you on the road, when you get out of your car, it's your fault, and it's not the fault of the driver of the car. It establishes liability for that law to be on the books. But that's a law. We know what that is. That's a law. But when we look in the Old Testament, the things that are called law, it includes a whole book of Genesis, and includes a whole lot of other things that we wouldn't think of as law. Yeah, most of this literature, when it talks about obeying God's laws, is only thinking of law in that narrow sense. Now, the question is, when we look at the entire revelation of the Old Testament, or just of the Mosaic Covenant, are we doing justice to the text if we just read through and isolate out the specific laws and say, those laws, decontextualized, are the laws of God that we're supposed to follow? It's similar to the question that Reuben raised earlier about whether you're approaching things in terms of the French, the Gallican approach to law, or the Roman approach to law. And the Gallican approach is every law system, every set of laws is unique to a culture. So the first question that I have for the theonomists is I'd like for you to define more clearly what you mean by law. Because when we talk about God's law, it's broader than what we think of. And we're really talking about God's revelation. And some of these laws would be very difficult to obey even in the Old Testament. And some of them don't make a great deal of sense even in the Old Testament. For instance, we're told not to yoke an ox and an ass together. As I understand it, very few people would ever be motivated to yoke an ox and an ass together. I don't think you could plow a straight line if you yoked an ox and an ass together. So why bother to give that law? And yet there are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't deal with that you'd expect it to. And we'll get to this in just a minute. In fact, I'm moving on into the next section. So the first problem with theonomy is I don't find in theonomic literature an adequate discussion of what biblical Torah is and the fuzzy edges of it and how it's not like what we think of as law. And you see, I think we've got to reflect on that some, even if just for a minute here. If you go to the Bible with the spectacles of a modern worldview and start reading it as a modern person, you're going to misperceive what's there. 
you're going to be blind to certain things in the text because you're coming at it saying, okay, what are the laws? The open Bible has in the back a whole system of Israelite law and it's got it grouped by torts and civil law, criminal law, and all these different modern categories. And it's got the verses all laid out and it's very helpful. But that's an abstraction from God's own revelation. That's not how God revealed it. And we're not coming to grips with the Word of God when we just read that abstraction. So we've got to be sensitive to this. It may not make any difference practically in the bottom line, but it will make a difference, I think, in how we read and how we study. So let me illustrate that then by the second question I have for theonomy, and that is, is the Torah laid out as a law code? Or, another way of saying it, are there law codes within the Torah? What you would think of as a law code, a list of laws arranged by a ramist principle of moving from the general to the particular and dividing cases, or any other way. You know, when we talk about ramism, if you ever read Puritan sermons, that's the perfect example of ramist logic at work. Three points and three subpoints under each point, three subpoints under each point. That's the ramist way. You can be sure you've covered all the bases if you divide it up right. And that's what the reasoning process is trying to accomplish, and it's just not a bad one, it just is a little bit boring at times as Reuben pointed out. Well, if you wrote a law code today, that's what you do. You deal with this problem and you try to lay out all the particulars and cover all the bases and you deal with the next area of crime. You deal with all the particulars, try to cover all the bases. Is there something like that in the Bible? Well, the answer is no, there's not. It's not laid out like a law code. And we have the Code of Hammurabi and other law codes that are quite a bit different from the ancient world. Now, that doesn't mean that the Torah is irrelevant for law. It just means it's not laid out as a law code. There are funny things in it. For instance, motivational statements are mixed in. Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27. Exodus 22, 26 and 27. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It's his cloak for his body. What else is he to sleep in? And it shall come about when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Now, what kind of law is that? The first part makes sense. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you return it to him before the sun sets, period. That's a law. Now we've got this other stuff in here. That's his only covering. <laughs> well, that's extraneous information. That's kind of sermonic. It's kind of Torah. It's his cloak for his body. What else is he to sleep in? Notice how this piles up. It's just like an exhortation. It will come about when he cries to me, I'll hear him for I'm gracious. Now there's a threat attached. That's not how laws are written, and yet the Bible's got this stuff mixed in. Mixed in. Notice how I said that? I'm presuming it's a law code with some things mixed in. It's a steak with some pepper on it. Well, that's the problem, you see. And that's what some commentators say. Well, it's a curious thing that the biblical law code has these motivational clauses mixed in it. Well, now we better stop back and say, maybe this isn't really a law code after all. Maybe it's a sermon on social matters from God that naturally consists of a series of commands. That's a little bit different from a social law code. It's more like a series of preconditions or presuppositions to the formation of a law code. So that's one aspect of this. And we're on point number two. Is the Torah laid out as a law code? The answer is no. And the first thing we saw is that motives are mixed in. Exodus 22, 26, and 27. A second aspect of this, it reveals to us that the Torah doesn't really have law codes in it, is that it's so incomplete. Let me show you a case of incompleteness in the law, and it's a very dramatic one. But you don't pick it up because you don't read this 
If we actually sat down and read Exodus 21 to 23, which looks just like a law code because it's just a series of if a man does this, then that, if a man does that. It doesn't have many of those exhortations in it, so it looks more like a law code than any other place in the Old Testament. But if you read it critically and say what's missing from this, then it suddenly becomes obvious there's a lot missing from it. Exodus 22, verse 6. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or standing grain in the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. Okay, if fire breaks out in your field and spreads over onto your neighbor's field, well, actually it says it has to spread through thorn bushes and then go to your neighbor's field. So now we're going to have to figure out, what if there are any thorn bushes? What if it just spreads? Does the law still apply? Well, we can grant that it probably still does. But what are those thorn bushes there for? We'll have to ask that next. But notice it talks about fire breaking out. Now, we read that and we think, yeah, fire could start and it could spread over to the neighbor's yard, destroy his crops, and now you're responsible, and that's real clear. And that's a law concerning pollution. And that's clear. We can make that as a law concerning pollution. But now, what was the major problem in the ancient world and in all the world until the 20th century technological society and still a major pollution problem in underdeveloped countries? Is it fire pollution or is it water pollution? It's water pollution. The stream you drink from, they've got an outhouse on the property next door right next to it. That's water pollution. And that's the problem everybody faces all the time over and over again in every culture of the world. Is what do you do with the guy upstream who's fouling the water or who has dammed it up and isn't letting you have it? And there's nothing in the Bible about it. Now, we can apply this fire law, but the question is, I think we need to ask it, you talk about an incomplete law code, the problem that everybody faced all the time of water pollution, unsanitary water conditions, because everybody's dependent on the stream that's coming from somebody else's property into your property and going to somebody else's. That's the problem you face every day. That problem isn't directly addressed. Now, you would expect that to be addressed in the law code. Fire breaking out is not something that's going to happen very often. Now, I'm not criticizing God. I'm trying to criticize the way we look at this. We've got to say, why is this here and not something else? And why is it incomplete? But that's an example of incompleteness. I'll give you another penalty for rape. Boston thinks it does. He must say ten times in this book, the Old Testament says death penalty for rape. Well, no, it doesn't. And we'll get to this later on. It's one of the odd things in the Old Testament that it doesn't. It actually requires the guy to marry the girl if he rapes. Of course, if you rape a married woman, that's adultery. So that's death penalty. But there's some curious things. Things you'd expect a law code to cover that aren't covered. Or aren't covered the way you'd expect them to be covered. And the third thing that indicates that the Torah is not really a law code is the odd phrasing that you find. And we just read an example of that in Exodus 22, verse 6. If fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes, so that stacked grain or standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. Why does it say that the fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes, so that the stacked grain? What's the thorn bushes in there for? Why didn't it just say, if fire breaks out and spreads to a neighbor's field? This is a curious way to phrase a law. If you want to have a real clear-cut law, you don't add stuff like this in. Now, there's a reason why it's there. I don't know for sure what the reason is. But there's a reason why it's there, and I think I can say why it's there in just a minute. And it'll be a good place for me to stop today. But what it indicates to me is, this isn't really a law code as we think of it. It's a sermon from God. And we make a mistake if we go to it expecting it to be a law code. And if we say, God set aside the nation Israel in the Old Testament and gave them a law code, that's not really completely true. 
God set aside Israel in the Old Testament and preached a sermon to them, and they were supposed to derive from that information by which they might form law codes. So we moved it back a step. We moved it back a little bit in the area of wisdom instead of in the area of legislation. And the theonomists don't want to do that. So what I'm pushing for is a little bit fuzzier than this position is. Well, let me raise one more question, and then that will stop this first series. The third question for theonomy is, are these case laws? Case laws. Everybody assumes they are. In my commentary that I wrote ten years ago, or started writing ten years ago and published eight or so years ago, on this passage, I assume these are case laws. Gary North, in his book on this section, calls it the case laws of Exodus. Bonson refers to them as case laws. What are case laws? Well, case laws are specific laws that deal with specific exemplary legal cases. So, you want to set up certain cases. If a man does this, then this is the penalty, and that's an exemplary case. The question is, does the Bible intend to give us in these smaller laws, not the Ten Commandments, but the smaller laws, if we can call them that for the moment, are those intended to be exemplary cases? Are they case laws? Well, I don't think that that's a good way to categorize them. I think, again, if we look at this as case laws, we are bringing maybe the wrong perspective to it, and it will distort our interpretation somewhat. If these were case laws, I think we could expect them to be more complete. And I think we could expect them to be grouped differently. Grouped according to some type of coherent legal pattern. If you look up at the top of the page of your Bible, it probably says various laws. What that means is the people who put this together couldn't figure out how they were grouped. It just looked like one law after another. Now, actually, they are grouped. They're grouped by the Ten Commandments in nice, neat sections with very slight fuzzy edges around them. So in Exodus 21, we have all the laws concerning violence, and they come down to one ox goring another ox and an ox falling into a pit, which isn't terribly violent. And then we turn around and we move to the laws concerning theft. If a man steals an ox and kills it, then he makes restitution. So there's theft with violence. And then we move into if he just steals it, and then if he borrows it, and then if he borrows it and breaks it, and we move on into property laws. And then we kind of move clearly into laws concerning adultery. Their sections are real clear, but they don't look like a law code. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 22, which is laid out in the Ten Commandments, one after the other, in order from Deuteronomy 12 to 25. But here we are in Deuteronomy 22. Listen to this concatenation of laws here. To start in verse 1. This doesn't look like case laws because they're not grouped that way and they're not real good exemplary cases. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. Is that a judicial law? I raise this because we're going to have to talk about it later. There's no judgment attached to that. It just says don't do it. It's a moral law. It's not a judicial law. There's nothing for the state to do here. Now, I will make the point later on that Bonson confuses case laws, or these laws, with judicial laws. He calls all of this judicial laws, but many of them don't have any judicial side to them. This just says, do right. It doesn't say, punish evil. That's different. Verse 2, if your countryman's not near to you, if you don't know him, then you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it, and thus you shall restore it to him. Thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment, and you shall do likewise with anything lost by your countryman, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall surely help him to raise him up. Well, now that kind of makes sense. There's a group of statements about how you ought to behave neighborly 
as one symbiote to another within the association and helping your neighbor in these various ways. A woman shall not wear a man's gear. If it says clothing in your Bible, that's too bad because it really refers there to military apparel. A woman shall not wear a man's gear, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For whoever does these things is an abomination of the Lord your God. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself. You don't have a choice here. You've got to let the mother go and take the young. In order that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of your vineyard become holy. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. Now those seem to go together. They're all concerning mixtures. You shall make for yourself tassels on the four wings of your garment with which you cover yourself. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her, etc. Now what's the logic in this? These aren't real good case laws because they're not arranged as a series of cases dealing with any recognizable legal matter. Now, they are definitely grouped. Down to verse 8, they all concern the seventh commandment. Starting with verse 9 and mixtures, we move to a discussion of the eighth commandment. Excuse me. I've got that wrong. I don't remember exactly where it's grouped. But there's a definite order to this, and if you want to know more about it, you can get this book that I wrote in there called Covenant Secrets in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where I lay all these things out in outline. Once I write something, I forget it. So now I don't remember how I did this. But there's a definite group to them, but it's not a case law grouping. It doesn't work as a series of legal cases. Some of these aren't even judicial at all. They're just exhortations. There's no punishment attached to them, except that maybe God might punish them. So it doesn't work really as case laws. They're teachings grouped by the Ten Commandments, and then there are patterns within each commandment. There's a definite order and structure to the way in which they're written. It's not immediately apparent, and it's really not apparent unless you understand biblical symbolism, because the symbolism accounts for a lot of the patterns. I call it theological laws. I don't know what else to call it. Sample laws, teachings... Case laws, we could continue to call it case laws, but let's be real sure that we understand by that something a lot fuzzier than what's usually meant by it. Because they're not a series of legal cases. They're just a series of commands from God. And they're not grouped like a law code. Why does it say fire spreads to thorns and then to your neighbor's field? I can explain that. You might not buy it. What are thorns in the Bible? Thorns, when you make them people, are bad people. What's fire? Gossip. The sins of the time. If you were sitting on an Israelite law court and a man said, My livelihood has been ruined because my neighbor told some lies and the sons of Belial have spread it all over town and now nobody shops with me. Would that come under this law? A fire is broken out, spread to thorns, and has now ruined your business? If you put some of the information in the Bible together, you might make that as a human application of this particular law. I don't have a problem with that, but I'm real familiar with doing this type of thing, and I'm at home with it. You might have a problem with it, and I might be wrong. But in my mind, that explains why God said, if fire breaks out, goes through thorns and goes into the field. That's what the question I want to know. If that answer is not right, I still want to know, God, why didn't you just say, if fire breaks out and goes through the neighbor's field? Why did you say if it goes through thorns? What have thorns got to do with it? 
They're there for a reason. And it's not a reason that can be explained in terms of understanding this as a law code. We've got to get back to a more foundational understanding of this. A sermon from God that we can derive principles from and apply to civil matters. But see, that raises some other questions. When you look at it that way, then maybe not everything that God said to Israel is supposed to be applied directly to other nations. And we'll get into that question later on. Does anybody want to raise up anything about what I've talked about so far? You can see that I have more to say, and I have a couple of others. Jeff? You mentioned something about water pollution being an obvious law code is incomplete. I suppose you have maybe other kinds of areas. I'm wondering, were these kinds of things addressed in other ancient law codes, the kind of things you say are not there? Is this incomplete in the context of the ancient world? Just something that we're uncomfortable with. You question? Yeah, your question is, yeah, and I need to repeat it too. Have I looked at the other ancient law codes and found them to be more complete along the lines that I'm talking about so they do cover things like water pollution? Or is this my problem or a problem we might have looking at it? The answer is, in preparing these lectures, I did not go back and look at it. From my remembering from when I did research on the Law of the Covenant, it is the case and is pointed out in fact, I believe I footnote other scholars who have made this point about the incompleteness of the law. Shalom Paul has a book called The Law of the Covenant and the Ancient Cuneiform Law Codes, and he points out how incomplete the Torah seems to be. So I'm drawing on that, and I didn't come up with more examples or comparisons. But that's where I would go to look. Eric? Okay, the question is, I've pointed to some problem areas in the law, but what about the laws that seem to be real clear? Am I making a caution? And the answer is, yeah, because it may be that when we learn more about the Bible, it won't be as clear as it looks at first glance. And the reason that I'm comfortable making a caution is, we're a long way from the day when God is going to give the sword into our hands as Christians to where we have to make that determination. So my call to the Christian community would be, let's not close the door on this too quick. Let's continue discussing it a whole lot and see what there is. Because there may be, in areas of the Bible that we're not looking at, big things that would qualify and render somewhat more problematic some of the things that look clear at first glance. For instance, and I'll give an example, the law of apostasy for a city that goes bad says the city is to be burned up with fire. Well, at first glance, okay, you burn the city up with fire. But at second glance, it says the city goes up as a whole burnt sacrifice, and the implication there and in the places where that's applied is that you take altar fire to do it. Well, if it's integral to the law that altar fire is used to burn the city up as a sacrifice to God, and we don't have any altar fire today, and if the altar fire today is the tongues of fire that's the proclamation of the gospel, maybe what that law really means is we go with the gospel in and we consume the city for Christ, and we're not supposed to really burn the city down in the new covenant. So what initially looks clear when you make a study of fire and altar fire in the Bible becomes a little bit less clear and opens up other possibilities of application and raises a question of whether we would want to apply that literally and whether Calvin was right to want to apply that one literally. So your point's well taken, and I am saying the more I've studied this and the more I've studied the ceremonial law and compared the system of the sanctuary laws with the system of the land laws and how analogous they are, the more connections you see, the more open-ended all of this becomes for me. And knowing how little I know about the whole system as a whole, I'd rather leave a lot of these questions open and continue discussing them and work on them. And I'm much less satisfied with 
what I regard as a fairly simplistic approach to the question that we're getting from the whole line theonomic position. Let me take your question, Andrew. Would you say then that Israel had the same challenge in applying these laws or these, the Torah? Did Israel have? As we are today, that they had to struggle with the same um, application of these things? Did Israel have the same struggle? Well, the answer is yes and no. They were supposed to meditate on it day and night, so obviously they would be continually seeking implications and applications. On the other hand, and I'll get to this later on, but there's a, might as well say it here, there's an obvious difference between the way they viewed the law and the way we do. Because they had to obey it whether they understood it or not. But we have to figure out what it means before we obey it. If God tells them, you are to make tassels on the four wings of your garment, that's what they had to do whether it made any sense or not. But do you have to do that? Well, you don't know until you figure out what it means. Is this something we're supposed to do or not? So, the fact is, we don't submit to the law in the same way they did. Now, when we get to the New Testament and it says women may not be pastors in the church, whether you understand that or not, you've got to do it. So we're clearly under that covenant, see? We're clearly not directly under the Mosaic laws. We've got to understand them before we can do them. We've got to figure out whether they apply to us or not. And that's a different mental activity than the activity of an Israelite who said, well, I know this applies to me, so I'm going to do it whether I understand it or not. See? That's an important qualification. One more, and then I'm going to take a break. No, you're not. Besides, you have a beard, so you get to ask a question. Spotsy doesn't like this kind of scholarly hesitancy that you're advocating. I'd like you to turn to page 311 and book the five paragraphs and read that paragraph on this earth. I'm supposed to look at page 311. Five paragraph of the Okay. This is what Boston says on page 311. And he's talking about Vern Poitras, who shares with me a reluctance to come to final conclusions at this early date in our discussion. We should note the practical consequence of the judicial agnosticism spawned by Poitras's approach. Nearly 2,000 years after the introduction of the New Testament, he still cannot be sure how certain sexual sins are to be punished by the civil magistrate. Think about that. Was civil justice simply to be put off for centuries and centuries while biblical interpreters continue to debate imaginative typologies and symbolisms? In the name of caution and doing the right thing, Poitras actually ends up having the magistrate do nothing at all. Does God's word endorse such a view of postponed civil justice? My answer to that is, when you stand before kings, it's given you to know what to do. And we're not there. And it doesn't bother me that when we only have five people in the United States who have even written books on this subject in the last hundred years, and all of them in recent years, out of two million people, we do not have a community of scholars broad enough to engage in the type of spiritual discussion the New Testament talks about. And until we do, I think we should be more open-ended. I don't think it's an all-or-nothing deal. Poitras is not an agnostic on loads and loads of things. He is an agnostic on certain sexual crimes. He's not sure about the capital punishment for bestiality and a couple of other things. So I don't know that we have to settle it today. Nobody's made us a magistrate today. And I think today is the day to discuss and debate. That's my response. See, our witness is clear. Our witness is, God hates this. God sends people to hell for this. The church excommunicates people for it. In the Old Testament, God commanded people to be put to death for it. And maybe we should put people to death today for it. That's clear. Anybody have any doubt about bestiality and how it's viewed, you know, in eternal matters? We've got one little question here that doesn't make much practical difference because nobody's asking us anyway. The town of Niceville is not about to start putting people to death for bestiality. 
we've got a long way to go before we're there. So we can postpone final conclusions on that question until we've done a lot more discussion. And I think is my response to what he's saying there. And yeah, after 2,000 years, it's not a surprise because early on there was the influence of Neoplatonism and there was the influence of Stoicism and Roman law and natural law. The discussions like the ones raised by Althusius were aborted. A century after the Reformation, the whole discussion has been aborted. So yeah, when you look at church history and you realize what's going on, it's not surprising that a lot of these things are still unsettled after 2,000 years. We haven't settled the millennial question either, as far as the whole church is concerned. Now we all know, but they are bigger. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.